I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are reconciling our modern, urbanized, industrialized, technology-inundated existence with our innate human need for the natural world. I'm Jennifer Grayson. If you are new here, welcome. And if you're listening again, thank you for coming back. Either way, I've got a great show for you today, a really informative show. And I don't mean that in a boring, you know, instructional kind of way, like here's this useful information I'm going to impart in this episode. But what I mean is that this interview is really packed with what I hope will be empowering information. We're going to do a wide range of shows on this podcast. So some are going to explore being out in the wilderness and delving into our human history. And some of the shows so far have been what I would describe maybe as more philosophical about the mental aspect of what it means to long for, you know, a more wild or even simpler existence while dealing with the reality of living in an urban environment. But I also want to give you shows like today's show that offer concrete things that we can do now to live healthier and happier lives and start to feel more proactive within the industrialized world that we live in. So I got this email recently. I just want to read it to you. And it said, Jennifer, I appreciate your balanced approach to managing your life. I understand you'd rather jump out and take your family to homestead in the forest, yet you are realistic. I don't tend to be that way. I have this idea of jumping out to do the right thing before it's time. So you're helping me wait and make a success of this stage of my life, which is a really nice note. I really appreciate it. But by the way, there are plenty of days where I do feel like taking my family to homestead in the forest or joining a Paleolithic era intentional community somewhere. And I'm fascinated by those possibilities. And we're going to do shows about those possibilities. But that's just not my reality right now. And I know it isn't for a lot of you. So I want you to feel like there are things you can do to uncivilize, if you will, even if like me, you live in the middle of a city or you live in the suburbs. So, all right, about this elusive show. My guests today are Dr. Michelle Perro and Vincent Adams, the authors of a new book about the link between genetically modified foods, glyphosate, which is a pervasively used pesticide, and gut health. And... I know for a lot of you, even just hearing the term GMOs is enough to make you tune out. There's so much debate. There's a lot of eye rolling around the topic. But I want you to stay with me for a second, because if you are the parent or a family member of a chronically unwell child, or if you're a medical professional and you're listening, or you know, if you have chronic health issues yourself, you really, really need to hear what they have to say and also read this book. And by the way, I say if you're the parent of a chronically ill child, I'm probably talking to the vast majority of you because according to the latest data from the Center for Child and Adolescent Health Policy, over half of U.S. children and teens now live with a chronic condition, whether that's food allergies or asthma or celiac disease or ADHD or autism. One in 42 boys now has autism. I mean, this is insane. A lot of us now see this as the new normal without realizing that this kind of chronic illness is unprecedented in our human history. So what the hell is going on? And what the authors lay out in this book, and by the way, these are not some kind of hocus pocus, like crystal people experts. One of them is an MD, initially from a mainstream pediatrics background. The other is a professor of medical anthropology at the University of California. And what they lay out in this book is this connection I have yet to see made, let alone so so meticulously detailed in a book, which is the advent of genetically modified foods. Stay with me for a second. So the advent of genetically modified foods, how that led to a dramatic increase in pesticide use, specifically glyphosate, and how those pesticides and also some versions of the genetically modified food itself, which can act as a pesticide, and in fact, can be is classified as a pesticide, how those foods are effectively destroying our microbiomes, which in turn 
is causing this dramatic increase in all of these chronic illnesses. So in fact, what we are now experiencing is a second silent spring. Here's the good news, as you're about to hear. This is something we can actually do something about. We can do something immediately with our own diets. Uh, There's so much action we can take if we're in the medical community, at the legislative level too. So I'm going to just leave it at that, other than to say that you really don't want to miss what, what these authors have to say because... Look, I'm someone who's been eating real food, local food, often organic food, mostly organic food, I should say, for a really long time. And until I read this book and heard their story, I didn't even realize the extent of what was going on and how my family's health was being affected and how there were so many, there were, there were just so many better choices I could actually make and so many things I can do to really reverse what is going on. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I hope you find it helpful. And I will be back next Monday with a new episode. Dr. Michelle Perro is a veteran pediatrician with over 35 years of experience in acute and integrative medicine. In addition to managing her own practice, she was previously director of the Pediatric Emergency Department at New York's Metropolitan Hospital, as well as attending physician at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland, among others. More than 10 years ago, she transformed her clinical practice to include pesticide and health advocacy. Vincent Adams is a professor and vice chair of medical anthropology at the University of California, San Francisco. She has previously published six books and is editor-in-chief of Medical Anthropology Quarterly. Together, they are the authors of the new book, What's Making Our Children Sick? How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. I'm also going to add the second subtitle on the book because I think it really gets to the core of what we'll be talking about here, exploring the links between GM foods, glycogen, glyphosate, and gut health. Michelle and Vincent, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. So can we start off just by having you explain what a medical anthropologist actually does? Because I I think it's really important context for the conversation about our industrialized food system that we're going to be having today. Sure. So medical anthropology is a field that's about 60 or 70 years old now that was created by the merger of the sociocultural branch of anthropology and the um, medical clinical practices that one found at places like UCSF. And in fact, UCSF was the founding institution for medical anthropology as a subdiscipline. So I have a personal history of looking at um, all the interface moments between health and culture, let's say. So I've been interested in traditional Tibetan, Tibet, traditional Asian medicine, and um and the way that cultural practices impact health. Um, and, you know, I've been publishing on the politics of health and medicine and the social dynamics that are involved in creating healthy communities and healthy individuals for years. Um, and, and I've also been really interested in, as many of my colleagues are, in the relationships around medical knowledge and the production of medical knowledge in relation to larger social phenomena. For instance, why Western medicine, or what we call biomedicine now, really has very little uh, um, interest in talking about the health of our food. (laughs) And uh, so we are also, as researchers, what we are particularly good at is um, what's called the ethnographic method, where we look at the human effects of larger structural, political, and social problems, especially those that end up with health deficits in some way. Now, so this is why I found Michelle's story so compelling, because um, you know, we, I started to hear about the kind of practice she had. I started to hear her description of the problems that we were facing around changes in our food production. And, you know, what really surprised me is that, like a lot of other people, I was initially really skeptical of her claims and positions on GM foods. You know, anyone that looks at the Internet knows, you know, automatically is faced with a barrage of naysaying about the possibility that GM foods are risky. And I was like that. And, um, you know, thought, oh, this is another conspiracy theorist on our (laughs) But after I spent more time with her and I heard her stories – I interviewed, we interviewed many of her patients and got their stories. 
And we, I kind of read over her shoulder about the sciences and dug deeper into the sciences and looked at the politics of the science. And I totally became convinced that we had an epidemic, as she says all the time, we have an epidemic on our hands and we really need to do something about it. And I want to get into that epidem- epidemic, but before, so you raised the issue of skepticism. Um, Michelle, can you tell us about your journey? I mean, how did you start off uh, on this path toward realizing what, what we're really up against? Good question, Jennifer. If you had asked me uh, 30 years ago, would I be sitting here today? I would say, no way. How did I get here? Um, always interesting. So I started off in acute care medicine, I, in pediatric emergency medicine, my first love, and was in the emergency departments for children, as you mentioned in our, my bio. And what happened was I had a sick kid. Welcome to reality. So my own sick kid's journey uh, took me into integrative medicine because I knew there was nothing for him in traditional, let's call it Western medicine for the sake of this interview. Uh, although I took him to all the specialists and I did go to UCSF and they said, well, nothing we can do. And I serendipitously found um, integrative tools, got him better. And I thought, okay, <laughs> let's reevaluate, shall we? I'm a New Yorker. I'm kind of a practical gal. So I started getting into integrative medicine, and then the more I learned, the more I recognized, oh, wait a minute, there's this whole toolbox where I can get kids better, and we're not using it. So parallel to that, I came across very reluctantly with a mom's group here in Marin County in Northern California, trying to stop the spray against this light brown apple moth, and they needed a pediatrician. I think just any pediatrician would have done, but... I was working with this mom clinically, so she said, Michelle, would you do it? And I didn't want to. I didn't see myself as an activist. I had two small children, and I didn't have the time. But I did it. And so thus began my journey, and through that work, um, one of the moms said, Michelle, read Jeffrey Smith's Seeds of Deception. And I said, oh, God, really? And I said, what's the problem with GM food? I was also skeptical in the beginning. This was 2006. I read this darn book, and on page 16, I went, oh, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And thus began my own personal inquiry into a food issue. And I haven't turned back. It's like that Navajo expression. You know, you can't pretend um, to be, what's that Navajo expression? Um, Well, there's an expression about once you're awake, you've got to be awake. You can't go back to sleep. So I woke up. I woke up, couldn't go back to sleep, realized I had to change my practice and started studying integrative medicine wholeheartedly. I already was a homeopath by that time in about 1999, so I had some tools already. And thus, I began to see more and more chronically ill Ill children. That happened over the past 15 to 20 years, and I recognized that kids were no longer well. And that was correlating with uh, CDC statistics, that one out of two kids has a chronic disease, and indeed... That was my own clinical experience. And through my work in activism, I started getting more and more active active with genetically modified food issues and pesticides, both. And we can talk about later in this interview, Jennifer, and until my serendipitous meeting with Vincent. And, and so I wanted to write this book for a few years, but because I work in front of a computer a lot in a clinic, I had a hard time putting my bottom in a chair after work. And so once Vincent offered to help me write this book, and with her amazing academic background, I thought, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. So hence the birth of our book. Okay, so <laughs> I, want to ask you about, I want to ask you about two things. So the first was, tell, tell me about that serendipitous meeting. What happened? Well, we were hiking. We're actually <laughs> well, yeah. we're neighbors, and we met each other literally hiking on the trail and started taking walks and talking about what we were working on. And there were just all these points of connection around her interest in food, her skepticism about the science um, being done in medicine around food. And uh, a lot of things that I also was familiar with from the perspective of what what literature was available from the social sciences and the critical social sciences of medicine about these things. And also my background on Tibetan medicine, I was very interested in how in that medical system, the first line of diagnosis and treatment is always food. And I was always curious as to why there wasn't more emphasis on that in the U.S. Um, with, with uh, uh, doctors from, from Western medicine. Um, so at one point I said to her, gee, 
you should write a book. And she said, I've been wanting to write a book for a long time. And so my first thought was, I'll get someone to help you, a graduate student. <laughs> I started doing more more looking into the topic. And I said, you know, this is so fascinating and so interesting. And like a lot of people who come to this well to drink, I had a personal experience with one of my children that was also being almost discussed before my eyes as she was talking about her clinical caseloads. And I said, oh, my God, if I had known you when my child was young, you know, things might have ended up very differently. So I had a personal connection to it as well. But really, it was when I started reading the literature, for me, when I started reading the literature about the science, and I realized what was going on, I said, you know, this really, really deserves a lot of attention. And so I thought, I can do this. We can work together and write this book. <laughs> yeah, and here you are. Can you, so are, can you tell me what was going on with your daughter? Uh, well, typical story, born C-section. And this was really funny because Michelle was describing the typical pattern of any kid before she knew what my story was. A kid who's born C-section, who develops some food sensitivities, maybe even allergies early on, um, turns into more serious problems of uh, immune heightened immune reaction, immune sensitivities and overreactions, resulting in things like asthma. I'm probably recounting it problematically. Um, food eating issues can result, hypothyroidism can emerge from that, and eventually a series of cascades into other kinds of chronic health problems, that ranging from mental health issues to chronic digestive problems to all kinds of immune problems. So, um, yeah, I won't go into more details about that, but that, that to me, she was describing this. You know, the kid born cesarean section, yeah. doesn't have microbiome. And then has, has been put on antibiotics all early in life many times because they've got chronic ear infections, and that impairs the microbiome as well. And then they're eating foods that they can't handle, and their system goes haywire. So, um, And then you put on top of that, you put in foods that have a lot of pesticides in them or are designed to be pesticides, and they're chronically undernourished, chronically underperforming systems. Uh, I think I should turn it over to Michelle now because she can describe this pattern better than yeah, I can. Yeah, and I, I just to interrupt you for a second. I mean, as as you're describing this, I mean, you're talking about what so many of us are dealing with. I mean, some version of it. I, I we're not just talking about you know a couple people with sick kids. We're we're talking about an epidemic. So, Michelle, maybe you can first lay out what we're up against. I mean, what are we looking at uh, on just a global level uh, in, in America today, what is making our kids sick? Good. This is this is the crux of the, of the book. And first of all, hats off to Vincent. You did a great job describing it. This gal could be a clinician at this point. She's she, she's just been a great student, um, ready to take on clinical medicine. Um, okay, so so it starts in the clinic. It works into the family. It goes into the school. Works into society and the big bigger global picture. It, but I mean, it starts with the individual. And what's making our kids sick is we are we have not been designed to eat the food that we're eating. We are all eating genetically modified food and their associated pesticides. Um, a pro if you go into a supermarket, 85% of what's in there has a genetically modified ingredient. Now, some of us may be able to tolerate some of it better than others. We all are individuals, right, depending on the factors that already Vincent has um, just put out there for you, C-sections, antibiotics, uh, associated other infections or disorders. So we are all individuals, so we all react differently. So we're all eating it. What we're not prepared to eat are these new proteins uh, coupled with pesticides, and they each have their own effect. And so what that's caused is a creation of problems with our digestive dysfunction. Now, as an integrative doc, it all begins with the gut, right? As functional practitioners, it all starts with the gut. And the gut is everything from your mouth to your tush. It covers a lot of territory. And when that gut is disturbed, there are other sequelae from that. It's all interrelated. We are a system of a human we are not just a gut or a lung or a kidney. We are a functioning system. So your gut is responsible for your immune function, 70%. It produces your neurotransmitters that run your, ner your nervous system and brain function. It's responsible for detoxification, first line, before your liver. So all those toxins and toxicants that come in through your mouth get cleared by the gut. And additionally, hello, it extracts nutrients. So everything you need to run systems comes out of your food. So if your gut is impaired because it's inflamed, and we go into this in the book quite a bit, it's called leaky gut or intestinal permeability, and 
you're not detoxing from all these chemicals coming in, and your immune function is chronically inflamed, which we can talk about later. I can stop there for now. And the neurotransmitters that run your chemistry are off. You can imagine how you can get everything from a kid with tummy issues to full-on autism, autistic spectrum disorder. So that, um, you know, I know this is a super quick answer, Jennifer. If we have seven hours, I can go into further detail. But just to give you an idea, and we'll, we, we can go into this further, how these foods have caused these issues. It's cause and effect. And I want to get that clear. It's not like, gee, we have no idea. Actually, we do. Because as we talk about in the patients in, the, in our book, when we made dietary changes, family members get better, a lot better. And I saw that over and over and over. So it's like, uh-oh, wait a minute. You change your diet and people get better? So is it anecdotal? Yes. Is there importance in anecdotal medicine? Yes. What, what do we do as physicians? We look at patterns and then we repeat the patterns of what we do, right? This is how we practice. It's how you learn. It's called experiment. And what a non-toxic way to treat someone, changing their diet, having them eat clean food, right? This shouldn't be revolutionary. And so, yes, we saw clinical improvements. So I apologize, kind of a long answer, but I hope that did I address you, your question? I you, hope you I did. did. You did. And, I, you know, look, the, your book is, this is what the book is about. And I, I'm going to urge everyone to read the book because there's so much complex science. And this is a, these are not easy pieces to put together. And I really want the audience, I really want everyone listening to get this because this was something I missed. You, you mentioned just now, you said eating clean foods, but I think a lot of us who are concerned about health and wellness and who want our kids to eat um, real foods. There's been a big movement toward not processed food, real food. We, we've come to think of that as not industrialized food. But what you are arguing in the book, and I really want, I want to back up and have you guys lay this out, is that this is the problem is, is that our real food is not what we have been eating for most of human history. There, so I could you actually talk about what is the real concern with GM foods? You write in the book that we have to move beyond the argument of that we're just tampering with nature because it's not tampering with nature. It's something more than that. So what's going on? So, I mean, I, you know, as a medical anthropologist, I'm loath to talk about GM foods being not natural. I think that's a spurious argument. You can't say any, I, I mean, historically, the dawn of agriculture turned our food into non-natural food. Um, and there've been histories of the development of food technologies, including things like hybridization, which created the possibility for industrial production of foods. But the particular thing that we are concerned with in this book is the way, and all of these things, all these movements have in some ways compromised the quality of food from historical times, but it's also improved the quality of food. Let's not be naive. There are improvements that have been made to food um, through hybridization. Just look at the quality of apples. Look at the diversity of foods we're able to get through industrial productivity. I mean, the supermarkets are a thing that has enabled the feeding of large parts of the world. However, at the same time that we've made these improvements, we've also gone into this territory where, because of the industrial production of foods, we have turned over responsibility for determining the quality yeah. of the foods to large corporations who have a vested interest in maintaining patent control over them. And in particular, there was a shift in the post-DDT era toward developing technologies that would reduce the amount, and this is important to remember, they were designed to reduce the amount of pesticides we would use in, our, in the production of our foods. And when we say pesticides, we're talking about both insecticides that kill animal pests and herbicides that kill weed pests. So those technologies that began in the 1970s uh, were created by agrochemical companies to, develop, to create strains of crops and techniques for uh, uh, spraying crops that would ensure higher productivity of the crops and reduce the loss to pests um, uh, and weeds. So we're talking about a branch of industrial food that started to be introduced into the food system by the 1990s, after like a 20-year period of, of invention, that um, we call genetically modified foods. So these foods are right now what I would call the iconic form of industrial foods. They're the commodity crops of soy, corn, canola, and sugar beets that um, 
began again with hybridizing the seeds in the 1990s, and then the, and then the shift to use of genetic engineering has increased the use of two particular kinds of modifications. The first are the Roundup Ready crops, and the second are the BT crops. Now, Roundup Ready crops are genetically designed to withstand the exposure to the active ingredient in Roundup called glyphosate. Glyphosate kills non-Roundup Ready plants, all plants that aren't Roundup Ready, by disrupting what's called the shikimate pathway, which is responsible for, for producing amino acids. Initially, scientists assumed this wouldn't affect humans because human cells don't have the shikimate pathway. But we now know that our our microbes in our microbiome do have the shikimate pathway. And so, of course, that ingredient, Roundup, which is now being sprayed over the last decade alone, its increased use has been increased by 240-fold. So we are getting massive amounts of Roundup in all the foods that are grown through Roundup-ready crop production systems. Um, and, and that affects the microbiome, we argue. The second type of technology is BT, which is a bacterial toxin that's a naturally occurring toxin. And the genetic modification in this case was such that they designed plants so that they would actually contain the protein that would kill pests. So in other words, farmers used to spray it on the outside of plants, and when insects ate it, it would kill them. And it kills them by going into their gut and basically putting holes in their gut and allowing septicemia to occur. Um, so it turns this technology turns the entire plant into a pesticide such that when an insect eats it, it will die. <laughs> okay, so the initial argument here was also that because of the pH difference between insects and humans, this wouldn't be harmful to humans. But we now know that most BT-activated crops have a pre-activated protein, so it is the activated form that we're eating when we eat BT crops. So those are the two things that have been present in the food system for the last two decades. And we argue that these, these, this wide um, spread and huge increase in chronic disorders from the digestive system through the immune system to mental health issues to allergies, eczema, asthma, all these things are uh, a consequence of eating now for several generations, eating genetically modified foods and allowing these things to get into our our food system. So in other words, by eating genetically modified foods, let let me just distill this down, whether you are actually ingesting huge amounts of the pesticides that are actually the glyphosate that's being sprayed on the GM foods, or it's the GM foods that have have themselves been modified to turn them into pesticides, those pesticides get into your system and then are effectively wiping out your gut microbiome. Is that the connection? Well, Jennifer, you, you've you got it. it. What's interesting is how much this actually happens has not been well studied. There's no human data. Repeat, we're eating food that's only been done on a handful of rat studies and not been done in humans. So how much glyphosate is actually affecting the human microbiome, we don't know. We have a study or two on animals, chickens, that we've extrapolated our data that I use clinically. What you have to know is that there are very few studies on the genetic modification process itself. Most of it's been done with the genetic modified process and the chemical pesticide. But when this genetically modified food was first introduced into Europe in the 1996, this um, Hungarian scientist, Dr. Arpad Puzdi, was asked to study it. And he specifically only studied the genetically modified process on rats, on a potato. And what he found was there was significant gut disruption. And he has beautiful slides that show it, as well as immune dysfunction, liver dysfunction, kidney dysfunction. And that's, that's how I did get my start. When I saw his slides of, of, from his work, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Why isn't this like out there? And um, what happened to Dr. Pusi was very tragic um, because this is where agro-industry came in. And he went on the BBC, was a hero for about three days, and then his lab was closed and all his work was taken away from him. So now we're talking about conspiracy theory. Here we go. But once I read that initial work, it's out there. Anyone and your audience can Google it and find it. Once I saw that, I knew that this genetically modified process itself was an issue. It went on to be further studied by another doctor who was 
also, oh my God, dragged through the, the weeds, no pun intended, with legal issues after his study came out that showed, yes, the genetic modification process was a problem and worse with genetically modified food and glyphosate, the um, active ingredient in Roundup, and even worse with GM food and Roundup. His name was Dr. Seralini from France. So we have animal studies. Industry, agribusiness does not want to see animal studies. Epidemiologic studies, where we study populations, we um, people study like those can have many flaws, but animal studies are more dangerous, and usually agribusiness wants to shut those down immediately. Again, no human studies, Jennifer, so we're dealing with a 20-year product with no human data. That I find, as a physician, shocking. We also have studies of glyphosate's impact on um, live animals, mice, rodents of you know, Michael Antonio's work. And I mean, Michelle's right. There's been a huge uh, backlash against doctors and scientists who have done research on GM foods, which alone, you know, sort of provokes your, your interest in sort of studying this as a, you know, validation of the conspiracy theory rather than a validation of the claims that, you know, the GM foods are safe. But anyway, I wanted to go back to this linkage that you were talking, you were asking about, what are the actual causes in the gut of, um, you know, I mean, in the book we talk about, first of all, we say that GM foods aren't the only cause of children's chronic disorders. There are many different causes and there are a lot of genetic issues. There are a lot of other things that pl play a role, parasites, you know, Lyme infections, other things can cause a lot of these problems. But we are particularly interested in the outsized role that we think food may be playing in that. And we do have to make, we, we talk about how we're trying to connect the dots in the absence of actual scientific studies on humans, which have never been done for various reasons that have to do with the way we regulate our food and the way we re regulate uh, pesticides. But we try to make those links. And so it's not just that the pesticides get into the gut and uh, impact the microbiome, which is what we're suspecting is happening. We also think, you know, and once you disrupt the microbiome and you're, you're disrupting the microbes in the shikimate pathway, you're probably interrupting the production of amino acids that we also need as humans. But it's also that you're creating this problem of dysbiosis in the gut, which Michelle can explain better than me, and leaky gut. And so things are getting into the bloodstream, including toxicants that come in the form of pesticides. Uh, along with other things you might be exposed to, uh, metals and uh, lead or whatever you're getting in your drinking water. Um, and those trigger a kind of chronic immune system problem where you've got low-grade inflammation going all the time, which we now know is tied to the problems of autoimmunity. So it seems kind of crazy to think about a you know a unified field theory like this. this one thing explains all these different disorders. But if you look at it from the perspective of an integrative physician that is actually looking at systemic function, systems function in the body, or functional medicine, I guess it's called, um, you really do start to see that there are these patterns that can be traced back to, as Michelle said, the gut, and the ability for the gut to do its job. Right. And it's astounding, especially when you look at some of the statistics that you you just lay out in your book, one in 13 children have a serious food allergy, a rate that has increased by 50% since 1997. Nearly 9% of children have asthma, dramatic increases from 1980 to today. Um, one in 10 of the more than 1.6 million Americans with Crohn's disease are, chil are children. I mean, it's just astounding the dramatic rise over the past just few decades. And so I was hoping... Michelle, can you talk about who were these patients that you were seeing in your practice? Can we just talk about it at more of like a personal level? Because I think it really helps explain what's going on. So wh who were the patients you were seeing? Well, um, so these, these kids, um, well, you see, I see mostly chronically ill children. So the children who have these issues, most of these children are kids who have fallen out of the traditional medical system. These are parents who've taken their kids, quote, unquote, everywhere, and they were given Western diagnoses with very little treatments, or the treatments they were offered are not what parents wanted to do, which are long-term pharmaceutical interventions, pill-for-ill type of medicine, and Vincent and I talk about that as well. And a lot of the parents, particularly the moms, felt like, you know what, my kid was fine until... 
There is something else going on here. We haven't gotten to the root cause. I know that um, this is something that we can fix. You'll hear parents say these kind of things, and particularly moms. And and I hats off to moms throughout the book because it's often moms who carry the burden um, of many of these ill children. So you have those kids, and I took care of a lot of those kids. But then there is another group of children who are walking around with diagnoses that are so commonplace that people are not starting to recognize them as chronic diseases, such as ADHD and asthma, which you have have talked about. One out of eight kids now has asthma. One out of six African-American children has asthma or obesity. 20% of children are now obese, one in five. And that can be linked to pesticides, too, by the way. Or, you know, um, how about autistic spectrum disorder? which to me is the most shocking change in pediatrics in the past three decades. One out of 43 boys right now is the last uh, stat I saw on autistic spectrum. It's huge. That, by definition, is epidemic. So we're seeing these group of kids. So parents will bring in the sickest kid, let's say the kid with autism, and you start to get them better. As parents start to institute change in a family, all of a sudden the sibling with simple smelly gas or the kid who couldn't sleep or the kid who couldn't focus, they're starting to get better, who had disorders who weren't recognized as disorders. You see what I'm saying, Jennifer? So you make these changes in a family and everyone starts to get get better. Even dad who may have had um, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, or mom who was anxious, right? All these disorders that we're starting to carry. So again, one out of two kids now has a chronic disorder, but many children have these subacute disorders that are commonplace. So you make changes and the whole family gets better, even the family dog. Right, right. And what's so crazy that we're starting to normalize so many of these things that we don't even know. We're so in the middle of all of this illness and chronic unwellness that we don't even know what's going on. So tell me about, so talk, let's talk about some of those changes. A, a mm-hmm. sick patient comes in. Um, I know, obviously, you can't talk about, it's hard to talk about um, specific things that you do, but like, what's the general path to wellness? Yeah. And is there, I mean, is there hope for, for these kids who come in? Oh, my gosh. Yes, 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 yes. Let's start there first. Kids okay. get better. The body wants to heal itself, and you can get kids better and their families. So if, the sense of hopelessness, let's just get that off the table. So um, it takes a long interview, by the way. Um, my, my average interview was an hour and a half. Um, and that could be with a two-year-old with not much history there. But you don't necessarily just get the two-year-old's history. You take the sibling's history and mom and dad and grandma and grandpa too. So you get the whole story. You also get an environmental history. Where do they live? Their home environment. What type of water do they use? Their, their food patterns. You take a big food history, repeat, um, as we focus on in, in our book. And... And what's around them? Like I had a kid who's across the street was a toxic leach field. And all the kids in that environment were sick on this one street in, in, our, in Northern California. So all that, you take all that data. Then you obviously you do your physical exam. You're like, you, you know, pediatrics 101. You check the kid out. And you look for things that maybe traditional pediatricians don't necessarily hone in on. The quality of their nails, the character of their tongue, their hair quality, um, you know, the quality of their skin, things that I'm looking for that mm, I wasn't necessarily taught to look at. And these are things that are really good clues to the health of a kid. And then we get lab results. We use as integrative docs, um, integrative practitioners, the standard labs. But in addition, we have a whole host of testing that we employ looking at Low-grade food allergies, which Western docs don't use, looking at the microbiome and seeing what organisms are actually in there. Nutrient levels. We can measure all your nutrients. We can look at, oh, this is so wonderful. We can look at your neurotransmitter levels to see what's going on there. Maybe a kid has chronic candidiasis, which is a fungal infection from um, an immune system that's faulty. So we can get a lot of data as we need it. And in addition, what we can look at toxicants, levels of plastics, phthalates, styrenes. Um, I can look at toluene, benzene, all these nasty chemicals that are not good for children. And so I can get this whole panel on urine for not a lot of money. So just to stop you right there, I'm sorry to interrupt you. So you're saying these tests actually do exist already. So why aren't regular doctors using them? 
this is the the question of the day, Jennifer. Um, we in Western medicine we're not trained to use them. Integrative docs, functional medicine practitioners, naturopathic doctors, some chiropractors, um, occasionally some acupuncturists do use them, but it's really falling um, in the toolbox of naturopathic doctors as well as functional medicine doctors, which many Western trained docs are getting their additional certification in uh, functional medicine. And yes, they are in our toolbox. It's starting to spread, but I think it needs to spread a little quicker. Okay, so you run, so you start running these tests, and then so, uh, and, and take it from there. What what happens next? Okay, where are we? So um, we get all that start in the first visit. Off they go. We they come back. We analyze the data. We look at the kid, and then we start treating. But even as they're out the door, I start changing the diet on first visit. I insist on a pesticide-free um, organic diet, and um, we're we're worried about using that word organic. As, <laughs> But there's no way around this organic food, and it's the best as the family can do, right, within their budget. We look at budgets, too. Like, what can this family afford? How can we make this affordable? No genetically modified food in the child's diet. And so I insist on that. A, a water filtration system, which could be something as a pitcher in the refrigerator, you know, a simple filter or something more sophisticated. And I give them resources on how to find water filtration, as well as um, a quick a reference on how to detox their environment and I give them a book to read and I ask them to take their shoes off at their door and to stop using plastic. That's like my 101 day one visit. Yeah. And I, you know, I kind of gasped when I started reading your book because as someone who's look like we shop at the farmer's market, I am very much a proponent of real foods. We make everything from scratch. I realized that, I mean, you're talking about a completely organic diet. And I realized that a, a large portion of our diet is not organic. And then I started thinking about all the snacks that like my daughter gets it in school and in, in her pre-K class. And like, you know, it's, you start to realize that real food is not the same as what you're talking about here. And that we are probably exposed to a huge amount of all of these pesticides. So how do you make the case to some of your patients that, because obviously like people hear organic and there's this association of, yeah, like it's going to cost a lot of money. And, um, you know, it's associated, it's kind of almost become, we talked about before uh, how it's become like a associated with this like hippy dippy environmental world when really you're talking about something much bigger. So like, how do you, how do you talk about this with your patients and Vincent, like, how do you talk about this within, with your medical students? Okay, so I, I could start with the patients and then Vincent, you could talk with your students because um, these are two groups of people. <coughs> you bring up a very good point, Jennifer, and I'm super careful not to do this. What I don't want to do is create a neurotic mom. So my goal is not to create a level neuroses where we're running after our children as they go to play dates in grandma's house saying, oh my God, don't eat this, don't eat that. I feel once a kid is better, they can probably tolerate some bad food, quote unquote bad food, once they're better. But initially I'm kind of hardcore without creating neurosis and I ask parents to do the best they can. I give them shopping tips. There are now, you know, big chain stores that carry a lot of organic food, not to plug anyone, but Trader Joe's and Costco carry a lot of organic. So you can eat organic in a budget. And what happens is when parents start buying organic food, they start cooking at home, less takeout. Takeout is usually not good food, and it's often processed and genetically modified, a lot of fat and salt, not the healthiest. So people need to cook more. So someone has to get back in the kitchen, and then we're talking about a social issue, like who's in the kitchen? I don't know if we want to go down that road, but that's another entire huge social cultural issue about who's cooking the food. And But what I tell families is, Hey guys, this ain't mom's job, okay? Everybody's in the kitchen. And I usually have families, believe it or not, go in on Sunday, that seems to be a good day for everyone, cook for the week. And that means little Johnny and little Susie and dad and mom. It's not mom's job. And that's very important to me, that we don't create more work for one person in a family. So we talk about it from that way, of how to institute these changes without going crazy, um, making it practical, not breaking a budget, and actually, if possible, making it fun. I know. Can you imagine? That this could be a fun, family-oriented thing. And if they could give their family this change, I guarantee them within four weeks they see a difference. And when they come back at the follow-up, they report they're feeling better. I said, just do it for a month. 
It can't be three days, Jennifer. It has to be like, you have to give it a few weeks. You give it a few weeks, come back and tell me what you found. That's how we start. I think that, that what you were bringing up is really, really important. The idea that local, the local food movement is not necessarily always 100% aligned with the organic-only movement. And uh, it's surprising how many times you go to local foodie events and find out that a lot of the food that's being used is not organic, whether it's the actual food or whether it's the oil they're cooking with or whether it's the spices they're using. I mean, there's a lot of slippage around the the notion of orga- people think they're getting really healthy food when they're doing local food. And, um, and, and also this, uh, aligned with that is this idea that Michael Pollan's idea about pa- not eating packaged food, you know, eating real food. It's also not necessarily 100% aligned with the organic movement. Um, there's a lot of, you know, slippage around people eating real, local, and not necessarily getting organic. Um, so th- the other thing is that it's not, you know, you're asking about what do I do in the medical school? How do I want to reach doctors and that sort of thing? It's, it's important to know that there aren't a lot of good studies that show organic foods um, impact on health. And that's just because there aren't a lot of studies. It's not because they haven't shown, they have been done and they haven't shown any impact. Um, but there are studies of how organic food impacts soil health and also how that impacts food health. That is the health of the food itself. And in terms of nutritional content um, and nutritive value that you're getting out of the food. So we do have that. But it is a real uphill battle, I think, in the medical communities because I think, you know, traditionally, Doctors have had a really hard time seeing food as the first line of um, intervention, uh, partly because of the influence of the pharmaceutical industry in medicine that doesn't, you know, is, is in some ways a competitor to food, uh, unless you're talking about the way the big agrochemical companies are now trying to engineer foods so that they are like pharmaceuticals, which is a whole different story. Um, but it's also hard for doctors to take on food because it's really hard to get people to change their diet. It's easier for them to, to give a pill. And people want to take a pill instead of changing their diet. Um, and, and it's also a problem because there just isn't enough knowledge about the quality of foods in relation to pesticide use and GM foods. And the other reason it's hard to reach the medical community is that a lot of the G- – my own theory is that the GM technologies used in our food system were sort of umbrellaed in as safe and enticing and attractive under the um, – on the heels of the GM technology movement in biomedical research, where it was being used to make things like uh, synthetic insulin. And uh, the idea that if you're being critical of genetic modification technologies in food, you're also criticizing biomedical uses of genetic modification is pretty typical. And that's not at all what we're saying. We're saying very specifically, we are using GM technologies in food that have not been tested, and we don't really know what the effects are. And we're starting to see patterns that we identify in the book. Medical students get a year of pharmacology. They get two weeks, perhaps, of nutrition. In my case, it was two hours. And anything in integrative medicine is an elective. It's not mandatory. For, for medical students now in their third year. So that is the medical training, but you get a year of pharmacology. And that includes reps from drug companies coming, depending what state you live in, and bringing you yummy things to eat because you're starving and you have no money, and then telling you about their new antibiotic. Okay, well, I would just chime in. I'm not opposed to pharmaceuticals. I've been no. saved by pharmaceuticals. My not life is much all. better. We need them. But we also need a lot more attention to this thing that we put in our bodies three times a day or more and uh, figuring out more, more effort to figure out how to how to work diagnostically and uh therapeutically with food. But, you know, on the uphill side or on the positive side of this trying to reach these communities, I do feel like the next generation of medical doctors in our country, you know, the ones coming through the pipeline now, they really are interested in good food. They are also, in many cases, people who experience the problems of these chronic disorders. And they're looking for answers. They see kids showing up like Michelle did with chronic problems, and they want to be able to find solutions. The, the problem with shifting over to an integrative practice like Michelle did is it means at this point departing from, in some ways, the larger uh, community of medical practices and not following the standard guidelines for clinical practice that are out there. Um, uh, or it means following them but also doing other things. And the industries and the machineries for changing the standard clinical guidelines are just very slow to change. 
and it requires having a lot of studies. And we just don't have those studies yet. And part of the reason we don't have the studies is that there's been a concerted effort to prevent those studies from being done. So uh, that's my take on, on, on you know, how, how, to, how the problem in the medical communities uh, is situated and what we can maybe do about it. I'm hopeful that the next generation is going to really embrace this and start uh, changing things more quickly. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm glad you mentioned that you're hopeful. But you know, you mentioned the machines, and I, I instantly think of so w- what's happening at the political level? What's preventing change at the political level? Are you optimistic on that front? Well, yeah, we're optimistic there. The um, we are optimistic, and I'll tell you why. Because um, many people have sick children now. And I'm pretty convinced, and I'll speak for myself now, that moms are going to change this conversation. It's going to be women because women tend to take care of the sick children in my practice. I saw mostly women, by the way, um, and not that dads weren't caring or loving or involved, but it, was, it seemed like the moms were bringing those kids in. And the, there are so many sick kids now, and these sick kids are so disrupting families, and moms who are educated are actively looking on, their, on, on the internet and finding things even before their doctors do, are going to shift the change. And that's my own personal belief, because not based on my own theory, but because it's happening with even my own families. I'll have moms come in with data that I hadn't even seen yet, saying, okay, Dr. Perra, what do you think about this? Because they're researching on one thing, and I'm looking at many things, and I'm like, nice find. Where'd you get the study? Let me look at that. So I am optimistic. Most women have a sick kid now, or themselves, or they're or sick, or someone in their family's sick. So I think this change is not is going to happen. It's happening. So that's my own feeling based on what I'm seeing in the clinic. I would say, you know, I'm hopeful because we're seeing you know, changes starting to take place already. Just take the case of glyphosate. The recent um, IARC ruling uh, uh, on glyphosate as a probable carcinogen actually created huge ripple effects. Uh, even in California, where the levels for uh, uh, determining the safe amount of glyphosate that could be used is um, in the process of being revised downward so that it will, you know, in a very serious way, limit the amount of glyphosate that could be used. We're not sure if it's going to pass. Um, and there's, of course, opposition to this all the way down the line, including to the initial IARC report about glyphosate being a probable carcinogen, which has been, you know, completely um, attacked by a number of, of, of industry representatives and scientists. Um, but there is hope. You know, little by little, um, the information about some specific things like glyphosate are getting out there. The science is being conducted by largely independently funded researchers, and that's being published. And, I, you know, I would just say one of the things that makes me hopeful is when you look back on the history of the way regulation of pesticides has been taking place in our country, you know, the Rachel Carson era... Um, it showed us that the opposition to DDT wasn't based on the fact that there was better science. It was based on the fact that the public got on board. And her book mobilized and catalyzed a huge public outcry against the use of DDT. And it's, uh, you know, based on the impact it was having on animals, although we didn't really know what the impact was on humans. And so we're, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that if we can get the public on board with this, to such an extent that it will change the tide of what the industry can get away with um, and, you know, and getting more people to vote with their pocketbook, so to speak, by wanting to buy only organic. Uh, that's going to produce change. It's already producing change when you have companies that are looking to the organic market as the, the best and most um, uh, opportunity-rich retail space. Uh, they're shifting anyway. <laughs> so, you know, I think it could happen through popular groundswell. But, it, you know, I think, again, getting the reluctant constituencies on board, like the medical community. Can you imagine if the AMA came out in support of this sort of thing, how swiftly things could change? Yeah, that would that would be remarkable. So, um, and here's hoping. Uh, so, if, let's say some of those moms are listening right now, and I know they are. What's the most important thing that they can do? See, this, uh, I think the most important thing they can do is, if anything, is to stop uh, using processed foods. If they can just switch to um, whole foods, fresh fruits and vegetables, and meat, 
and if they're not if they're if they eat meat um, and to filter their water so let's say they couldn't even eat organic because of price concerns if they can just get away from packaging right there that would be a huge decrease in the toxic load which we call the allostatic load of amount of toxicants and toxins kids have to carry in their bodies that would be profound so making that switch would be like a 101 if they could go further and start switching to organic food um, and using the farmers markets and as much as they possibly can that would be even better if they could use filtered water instead of tap water that would be a, a, another big shift and I would say to try and reduce plastic use um, another thing to know Jennifer is there are no studies regarding polypharmacy polychemicals poly anything in children or anyone for that matter so the effects of Plastics, solvents, and pesticides on your gut health, on your on your child's brain, unknown. So we what we tend to do is studies that just look at Roundup or just look at atrazine or just look at phthalates and not the combined effect. And we suspect, and scientists have, have suspected this for a while, it's a much more toxic effect. So if we can help the kid by reducing those toxins and toxicants, then we've already done a lot. And those are simple things I think everyone can do, and that's without any treatment protocols. I didn't give any, you know, treatments that I use in the toolbox. Those are just simple changes families can make. And how do you feel about the non-GMO designation that we see everywhere now? Personally, I'm all over it. I like to know what I'm eating. I want my patients to know what they're eating. You know, if we don't label... So it's we, real. I mean, you... you it's, it's real. Okay. So the way you track a disease by knowing if what where it is. For example, when the, the way we figured out HIV was surveillance... But if we're not labeling GMO food, we don't even know if we're eating it. So label it. So you can trust the labeling that exists right now when you see, for instance, like the non-GMO project and all of those things. Is yeah. In your mind, is that if, let's say, a family can't afford eating organic chicken, but they can afford the one that's fed non-GMO feed? Is uh -huh. that, how do you see those two choices? Are they, are they equal? Um, I don't think they're equal. It's better. Okay. I don't think, I would say if you can avoid it all, and eat that organic free-range chicken, but eat less of it. So if a family said, well, I can't afford it, well, I'd say eat less of it. Here, eat less, buy a smaller piece, and make it in a stir-fry with lots of veggies and, you know, brown rice or, you know, <laughs> right, right there is better than eating for me in my book. But, yes, if it, as much as they can get out is the best way to go. And, Vincent, what do you think the most important thing is? Well, I think um, getting the word out and um, not letting people uh, so feel like they have to back away when people roll their eyes when you mention GM foods or organic foods, you know, that, that eye-rolling thing that happens where everyone goes, yeah, I just don't want to go there. It's too controversial. Right, right. We need to get over that. We have to get beyond that. I mean, I think, you know, it's one thing we're talking about communities where people can afford to go to an incredible doctor like Michelle who's willing to try new things and who can afford to buy organic. But if you look across the board at how many people are suffering from these things that don't have access to any of that, we're talking about a public health crisis. So we need to come to, we need to get some answers about what's going on. We need to solve, create some solutions. And the first hurdle for that, or it's not the only hurdle, but a big hurdle is cleaning up the food supply. So, you know, coming up with a strategy for being what we in my field like to call a credible witness on these things that, that would enable people to take a second look at the GM food debate instead of just rolling their eyes and walking away and being reasonable about it instead of going to the, you know, the, the black and white polarization position where, you know, you're either being anti-science or, or you're being a conspiracy theorist or you're being... Uh, bought by industry and you know you've drunk the kool-aid that's that's those are kind of like the only two places you can go on it now and we need some more neutral uh conversations that are looking at not only the science and the uh you know um the clinical uh, terrain but also at the larger social and political infrastructures that are operating in this space and um, we need to be realistic about it and be honest about it Right. Uh, wonderful. And I, I want to applaud you both for writing this book because you talk about the science and, and skeptics. I mean, the science is there in your book and you lay it out so brilliantly that I, it's really, you can't argue against anything that you write. So I hope everyone listening right now reads your book, um, What's Making Our Children Sick, How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. Uh, what's next for you and where can people stay in touch? Are you guys on social media? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are. Well, let's see. We, we will have a Facebook page, and they could always find us through Chelsea Green, our publisher. And um, they could also find me through um, Gordon Medical Associates is where I supervise. And, um, and mostly I'm doing some lecturing now. And Vincent? Um, yeah, well, I was going to say uh, there's a website that Michelle runs called GMO Science, which is a very useful and informative site that people can go to to get quick and easy access to some of the science. Um, and I'm not sure it, it's 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 been around for a while, but it's uh, I'm not sure whether it'll have a blog so a community can be formed around it or not. My own um, uh, pathway is going. I mean, we're both lecturing on the book for the next year or two. Um, and and look forward to that. But I also I'm I'm actually starting a second project on this topic, which is not so much about the clinical practice, but about these larger issues of lack of trust in um, a science that has emerged, and the GM debate being a case in point. The sort of collapse of the medical system that has failed our chronic children and chronic um, people with chronic disorders so badly, and um, and then also. Uh, a kind of an interesting concern with how we got to this place by doing more of the history on the development of the GM foods and how uh, we, I would call it, uh, formed a kind of gullibility around our our trust in these technologies. So that's my next project, <laughs> but it's going to be more of an academic book. <laughs> well, I hope you'll come back and talk about it when that when that's done. Thank you. Thank you both for being on the show. Oh. This was such an amazing conversation. Thank you, Jennifer. Really nice chatting with you. Yes, very nice chatting with you and great work on your side too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.